The opinions and views expressed in the OC Variety Hour with Cameron Jackson do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Are you ready? Yeah, are you? Always. What's coming up? Best damn radio in Orange County. I can feel the tension. Me too. Can we do it? Always. We're the best. What's it called? The OC Variety Hour with Cameron Jackson and guest co host. Manoj Mahendrakar. Good morning, Orange County. Welcome to the OC Variety Hour, where we are always interesting, always informative, and always entertaining. I am your host, Cameron Jackson. While he's not here in the studio, he's here in spirit. Manoj, where are you? We'll find you sooner or later. As always, you can call into the show, 949-824-5824. That's 949-UCI-KUCI. Also, you can listen to us on the web. Just go to www.kuci.org. Also, be sure to check out the OC Variety Hour website at www.ocvarietyhour.blogspot.com. Well, I have a great show for you today. You are not going to want to miss the entire hour here at the OC Variety Hour. Before I introduce my guest... Remember, next week in studio, 8 a.m. as always, Irvine City Councilwoman Christina Shea will be in studio to talk about the Great Park and the shenanigans of Larry Agron. You do not want to miss that show. Now, without further ado, my guest today is the spokeswoman for the DA's office, Tony Rakakis' office. That's the district attorney. Her name, Susan Kang Schroeder. Welcome to the show, Susan. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Outstanding. Thank you for being here. So you're here because a few months ago, I had Joe Cavallo in studio to talk about the Heidel case, the Jaramillo case. So as a equal time, equal representation, you're here to kind of talk about, from the DA's point of view, those cases as well, and maybe a little rebuttal to some of the things that good old Joe Cavallo had to say. Well, Joe Cavallo always has a lot of interesting things to say. They're not always accurate, and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to set straight a lot of the misrepresentations of the fact that Mr. Cavallo made. Right, right. Now, let's talk about the DA's office and what's going on. Well, first of all, I want to talk about you. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your role in the DA's office. What what does a, you know, I like to try to give the listener some background on the people that come in here so they know what that person does, because we always hear spokeswoman, spokesman, this, that, and the other thing, but do people really know what that is? So give me an idea of what you do in this DA's office and all that good stuff. Well, um, I'd like to start out from where I come from, which is um, uh, I'm an immigrant. I'm a, second, I'm a first-generation Korean. Uh, my family and I moved here when I was 10 years old. I have a uh, sister who's a medical doctor who actually went to UCI Medical School. Oh, outstanding. Yeah, and my brother um, has a PhD from uh, MIT, and he worked for JPL NASA. He really is a rocket scientist. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, hey. <laughs> and I have a younger sister who went to Stanford undergraduate and went to uh, 
is going to Wharton uh, Business School, and my youngest sister is a um, former uh, TV broadcaster, and now she is a business owner. I went to U USC undergraduate and University of San Diego Law School, both on scholarships, and uh, which really means uh, nothing more than my parents were really poor. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I work for various political offices, including uh, for President Reagan, uh, California Republican Party, and then um, I worked for uh, the city attorney's office in Anaheim for four years as a prosecutor, and I've been with the DA's office for six years now. Um, I was a regular line deputy for a few years, and um, when the Alejandro Avila case hit, the, the guy who is convicted and has been sent to death row on Samantha Runyon, there was a huge explosion of media coverage, and uh, it was really more than one person can handle and uh, I was brought in um, the sheriff's department wanted to work with me and it was very important that we not say anything in that case that could jeopardize a case and really keep within the rules of professional responsibilities that DAs have and uh, since then I've uh, been training two different uh, media persons uh, in the rule and uh, I, I basically um, make sure that the information that comes out of the district attorney's office is accurate and that's within our uh, rules of professional responsibility, and we don't do anything to hurt the defendant's right to a fair trial, and we disseminate uh, correct and, and accurate information. Right. What about, you know, let's just jump right into it. Um, you know, the Heidel case is kind of, it seems like it's been in holding. Where are we at with the Heidel case right now? Well, um, in July, the defense came in wanting a motion for a new trial, and uh, that was denied. On September 30th, uh, they're going to, or they've already asked it, uh, the judge to rule on whether the defendants should be treated as juveniles for sentencing. There were 17 and 17 and a half um, at the time they committed the crimes. And I'm anticipating that gets denied because their crimes uh, were adult-like and they should be treated like adults. They and were tried as adults, is that correct? That's correct. Right, okay. And uh, when that gets denied, uh, the court will set a sentencing date, and uh, my prediction is that they're going to be sent to state prison for a very long time. So we don't know when the sentencing date is going to be? We won't know until September 30th. All right. Now, there was a lot of, there was a lot of back and forth between you and Joe during that part of the trial. Uh, Joe kind of came in here and felt very, he was upset about how um, he was portrayed in the media, specifically by you. And there's, let, let's just play this one soundtrack so you can kind of hear what he had to say. And, and I know you've, you've probably already heard this one, but uh, let's look at it here real quick. Just give me a second. Yeah, number one. There we go. Try this one here. What I saw take place during the Heidel case to me was disgusting, absolutely disgusting, with the way in which the media was used um, to help promote, prosecute Gregory Heidel and those two other boys, and do it to the point where uh, it went beyond being unethical. It, it was sinful, sinful the manner in which these uh, Greg was attacked. And quite frankly, and not to make it personal, but uh, it was disgusting to see how I was attacked personally uh, and how um, the district attorney's spokesperson, uh, who I didn't know from a hole in the wall, by the way, uh, decided to um, 
use the media to attack me and, and my alleged tactics. And, and who's this media spokesperson? Uh, Susan Schroeder. Right. Okay. She, Susan she's just, King Schroeder. Uh, yeah, there was, she was on a mission during the Heidel trial to um, to attack Greg and to attack me and, and to use whatever sources she could and to uh, to get it done. And she and quite frankly, I thought she did a a, um, a very good job of uh, doing that. Yeah. Not much anything else, but of doing that, certainly. Yeah. Kind of harsh words there. Well, I don't think I uh, made it on Mr. Cavallo's Christmas card list. <laughs> so what do you have to say to that? Because, I mean, he, he really felt very strongly that the trial was just, you know, it was, they really vilified his client, Greg Heidel and the and Knockreiner and, and uh, Span. And what's your reaction to that when you hear something like that from Mr. Cavallo? Well, let me, I, I need to take people back. Yeah, please, um, please. Basically, the district attorney's office really didn't comment on the case until preliminary hearing. And what happened during the preliminary hearing is that the that we found out um, that the district, I'm sorry, that Greg Heidel had hired a publicist. Now, I've been in the business for 10 years, and I have uh, other people in my office that have been in the, in the business for a lot longer than that. I've never heard of a defendant hiring a publicist to defend uh, themselves. So they very publicly told anybody who would listen that they were going to use the media and manipulate the media to to uh, vilify Jane Doe and uh, win their trial. In fact, they're the ones who contacted 48 Hours um, to cover their story. And um, normally, the District Attorney's Office do not comment on the case except for the very bare facts, but within our rules of professional responsibility, we have the right and the duty, actually, to respond to any uh, defense claims that aren't true. And Mr. Cavallo, what he did was he was willing to do and say anything um, to defend Mr. Heidel. Now, we have also have a duty to protect Jane Doe and protect future Jane Doe's from coming forward when they have a case like this. And we heard from many victims that they didn't want to report this because they don't want their sexual past uh, to uh, come out in the open. And, you know, i got to tell you, Jane Doe is a wonderful, intelligent, smart, beautiful uh, girl with a heart of gold. And she really has been vilified by Mr. Cavallo, calling her every name in the book, um, saying she actually was the one who committed the crimes uh, upon the three defendants. And... Um, and I had to make sure that she is protected and the people of uh, California are protected. And as to... Uh, and, and as far as Jane Doe is concerned, how then does it... Because she, she's got a storied past of her own and a storied present. I mean, she got arrested soon thereafter for what possession of methamphetamine, and she was with a couple of other older gentlemen again. I mean, how does that complicate things for the DA's office and for you... To, to try and deal with those issues because, you know, here you've got somebody who's, you know, you say Joe Cavallo's vilifying her and whatnot, and you guys are trying to say, no, she's okay, she's this, that, and the other thing, and then she comes out and she makes that mistake. You know, how does that complicate? How do you deal with those types of issues? Well, um, I think that it's, um, she, what she was arrested for, for basically um, holding methamphetamine for her boyfriend who was actually not older her age, but um, that's not the point. Sure. And she was actually convicted of simple possession of methamphetamine. And, you know, before all of this happened, she was a straight-A student. 
she was somebody's sister, somebody's daughter, mm-hmm. somebody's friend. Mm-hmm. Um, she had her whole future ahead of her. And because of what Mr. Cavallo has done and the three defendants have done, she lives her in her own private hell, in her uh, wall of uh, uh, her prison. And, and the walls that she has are of shame and despair and guilt. And um, that's what she lives with every day. And, uh, you know, I mean, as far as her past being not being perfect, well, guess what? Neither are the defendants. And she's labeled as a slut because, gasp, gee, she had sex with the defendants. Wow, she's a slut. Right, right, right. But then look how they're treated. Exactly. And, yeah. and you know, Mr. Heidel actually had kept inviting attention to himself. He had five police contacts after he was arrested for um for for rape and intoxication and all that stuff and gosh i gotta tell you if i'm on bail for a serious crime where i'm looking at serious serious uh state prison sentence i wouldn't jaywalk but mr caval i'm sorry mr heidel kept getting arrested and arrested and arrested and uh it made made for great cannon fodder on my end (laughs) i loved it every 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 time he did something wrong it was beautiful it was uh he really, it was a great story. Right. He really did a lot to bring the attention to himself. And, and you know, the other two defendants, even though they were charged with the same things, they didn't get the attention that Mr. Heidel did because Mr. Heidel kept inviting attention to himself. Right, right. Okay, so basically the DA's office is anticipating that they're going to get sentenced as adults, and what that sentence is is going to be still up in the air. It's up to the judge. Is that correct? It's up to the judge. What the probation department will do, assuming they get treated as adults, is they... Uh, take a complete background of the defendant's history, of their remorse, of the, you know their their um, uh, background, um, their basically ability to um, do well in probation, and the the probation department will make a recommendation. Also, looking at the facts of the case on whether they should get probation or state prison, and and if it's state prison, for how long. And uh, you know we we're not going to say well they need they need X number of of years yet because we want to consider all those factors as well. Let's move on to the Jaramillo case because that one's a little bit more fresh right now and that one's the one that's kind of getting more attention at the moment. Um, I, the the most recent development is that the grand jury came back and really didn't have a lot of good juicy details for Erica Hill. They they. The way I read it was that Erica Hill was lesser of the two as far as the types of uh, crimes committed or whatnot or alleged. Now the DA's office, and correct me if I'm wrong, they've they've given her immunity. Is that what's happened? What happened was initially Mr. Jaramillo and Ms. Hill were charged um, with a complaint. And we decided to take the case to the grand jury because... We wanted to present different facts and and uh, come up with a different legal theory, and um, we also took a look at um, what everyone did and who really was in the position of trust and who had violated the trust. And basically, we decided that even though Miss Hill can technically be charged, we decided that um, Mr. Jaramillo was really in the position of trust, and he's the one who violated that trust. And therefore, we decided to give Ms. Hill immunity and um, drop charges against her. It sounds, from my perspective, and I'm sure from the public's perspective, it sounds like that's backpedaling. It sounds like that the case might not be as strong as it could possibly be 
and there seems to be some reevaluation at the DA's office of how you can get a conviction. And there have been a couple articles out, especially by R. Scott Moxley, uh, where he's kind of laid out how there are major holes in the case. Maybe you can address some of those issues as well. Well, um, the evidence is very clear in that case, in, in this case, that um, that um, we basically, the reason why we went to the grand jury is that we made the case a lot easier to prove by charging him with different different crimes. And... Um, and that what was he? What was he charged with initially? He was charged with conflicts of interest, which are misdemeanors actually, mm-hmm. and that he was charged with misappropriation of funds. And we decided that although um, he, we could probably case prove that case in court, um, it's a lot easier to um, prove a bribery charge in the state of California because it has less, um, it has different elements, and it also. Uh, gets rid of a lot of defenses that Mr. Jaramillo would have had. And basically, it's not unusual for prosecutors to uh, uh, change their um, uh, tactics or, or their theories. Um, we do it all the time. Uh, we, we have amended complaints. Um, it, right. It's not unusual at all. And, and the people of Orange County will have, a, you know, have their day in court and will be able to decide what kind of government they want, what kind of law enforcement they want. And they're going to decide whether Mr. Jaramillo uh, had a position of trust and he was holding the public's purse and where, whether he was uh, protecting the public purse or lining his own pockets. And they'll have a chance to decide that. And um, I think we have a very good case. I think we have a, uh, we've simplified the case quite a bit. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll let the jury decide. The deposition with Charles Gabbard, uh, that was kind of an interesting deposition. Gabbard himself is an interesting man, and he is—he seems to be kind of the star witness in this case. Gabbard himself, though, is kind of a con man. Does that make things more difficult to sell to a jury when you've got this guy, Charles Gabbard, who's a con man, versus George Jaramillo, who's got pretty— I mean, other than some of the— um, lesser things that we've heard about him in the media about his personal life other than that he's got a pretty decent career as a law enforcement man doesn't that kind of i mean who are you going to believe kind of issue how does the da's office deal with something like that well first of all um i actually disagree with you that mr gabbard is the star witness the star witness in this case is going to be they're going to be the documents themselves um the checks that are written first to mr jaramillo and then uh, it switched to his wife, um, the checks that are written to him later, the demonstrations that are put, put on. Um, so I'm not sure if Mr. Gabbard is a star witness in, in that sense. And as to uh, Mr. Gabbard having a very colorful past, um, you know, we, it's not unusual um, in criminal cases that one or more of our witnesses or victims of a crime have criminal backgrounds. Um, for example, we would never be able to prosecute gang cases if um, the witnesses or the victim didn't have um, uh, criminal convictions. And um, it's something that we deal with on a daily basis in the DA's office. And, uh, but, you know, what's interesting is Mr. Jaramillo, knowing what he knew about Mr. Gabbard, didn't feel that he should distance himself didn't have any problems of, of accepting payments or, or doing business with him. So Mr. Jaramillo 
trusted Mr. Gabbard enough to do to have dealings with him, yet he's going to want the jury to not believe Mr. Gabbard. He's going to have, actually, I think Mr. Jaramillo will have a tough sell trying to convince the jury of that. Well, what about this leak? When I had uh, Joe Cavallo on, the leak had just occurred about uh, George Jaramillo's sexual innuendos, his uh, storied sexual past, uh, sleeping with his, his sister-in-law, having a notebook full of naked pictures of his conquest, so to speak. Joe Cavallo was pretty adamant and pretty convinced that that leak came specifically from the DA's office, and I kind of felt he felt it came from you, and he he conveyed to me on interview that the court even felt that it came from the DA's office. How do you respond to that? Well, I can respond to that by saying, number one, um, they filed a motion trying to manipulate the media, trying to get that story written, and what um, he didn't tell you is that, number one, I never had access nor wanted to have ac access to any of the documents that were quote-unquote leaked. Um, the defense had uh, the copies, and it's my understanding at this point that Mr. Jaramillo was the one who leaked it. And and second, um, they withdrew that motion. Yeah, well, let me stop <laughs> right there real quick. Why would you as an individual, not you, but just an individual who's under indictment for something very serious, send out more damaging information about themselves. I, I have a real problem with that as, a, as a, an answer because myself personally, if I've got skeletons in my closet and nobody knows about them, well, I'm not going to throw them out there and make the situation worse for myself and, and destroy my persona in the jury pool that hasn't been picked yet. So... You, you know, and I think the public has a hard time with that too. When they hear that from the DA's office, it's like, mm, wait a minute, why? Why would you do that? Well, first of all, Mr. Jaramillo was the magic behind the Heidel media uh, strategies, and uh, he's apparently bringing the same magic to his own defense. How, how was he? You mean he was advising Joe Cavallo? He was advising to... Joe Cavallo, Mr. Heidel, and and the team as to what they should do in the media because. Uh, Mr. Jaramillo really fancies himself as a media savant, so to speak, um, that he thinks he's a uh, great tactician. What I think what happened was he shared the document with uh, first with um, Mr. Moxley of the OC Weekly, and it, he felt like it worked so well that he took it to Mr. Saavedra. And, uh, and Saavedra Cerve is who? With the Orange County Register, okay. whom I've never met, actually. Um, and... Uh, and they took the case, uh, they filed a motion to generate a media interest um, to accuse me. And then what happened was when... when they filed the motion saying that, saying you, that, leaked I leaked it, it. that you leaked it, okay. um, based upon absolutely no evidence. And the best evidence they had as to saying I leaked it was I was seen talking to Dave Lopez of Channel 2 oh. and a... CBS, I mean, I'm sorry, register reporter happened to be nearby, and therefore that's how the register got it. That was their big uh, smoking gun, so to speak. And uh, as to um, um, uh, the motion, they had to withdraw it because they knew they were going to lose and that they knew that what they were saying were absolutely, uh, absolutely untrue and they're outrageous lies, and they knew they were caught. And, uh, and ultimately the judge withdrew any understanding or any um, opinions that he had that anybody from the DA's office uh, uh, leaked it. Because had the judge said that initially, though? The judge 
initially thought based upon what the defense told them I told see. him I see. that somebody that that this document could have only come from the DA's office and later on it was revealed that both the defense and the DA's office had it and DA's office meaning uh, meaning uh, James Lair the DA at the time I never had access nor wanted access to any of the documents that that were leaked so you know they're under lock and key somewhere in the DA's office and I never had access and that was all put into affidavit and, and submitted into motion. And uh, based upon that, the defense knew they were caught and they withdrew it. If you're just now joining us, you're listening to the OC Variety Hour. I'm Cameron Jackson. This is 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest today is Susan King Schroeder. She's the DA spokeswoman for, obviously, the DA's office. If you would like to call in and ask any questions, feel free to. It's 949-824-5824. That's 949-UCI-KUCI. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue to talk just a few minutes more about the Jaramillo case, and then we will jump over to a couple other good subjects. We'll be right back. Today in a world of sound bites and constant visual stimulation telling us how to look, act, talk, and feel we have lost our ability to connect. Instead of focusing on what celebrities are doing as if they were our acquaintances, maybe we can look more to each other to emulate and learn from. Join us Friday mornings from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. with Peace by Peace, where we discuss issues that affect our peace, peace of humanity, and peace in our time. The State Public Interest Research Groups are a network of independent, state-based, citizen-funded organizations that advocate for the public interest. Since 1970, they have been delivering results-oriented citizen activism to protect our environment, encourage a fair and sustainable economy, and foster a responsive democratic government. They uncover threats to public health and well-being and fight to end them using the time-tested tools of investigative research, media exposure, grassroots organizing, advocacy, and litigation. Please visit PIRG.org. Thank you. Let's sing that new song. My music track, track, track from my modem jack, jack, jack plays MP3s, threes, threes, and I download fast, fast, fast. I read the bits, bits, bits on the microchips, chips, chips, and I burnt, burnt, by the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in technology, but parents can help keep them updated. Go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. And your warm and fuzzy friends at KUCI. Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. McGruff the Crime Dog here with my nephew Scruff. Here's the address for my new free comic activity book. Scruff McGruff, Chicago, Illinois, 60652. Scruff McGruff, Chicago, Illinois, 60652. It shows kids what to do about guns and drugs and bullies and strangers. And it's got games and puzzles, too. Write it down now. Scruff, Scruff, Chicago, Illinois, 60652. 
A public service message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, the Crime Prevention Coalition, and the Ad Council. Welcome back. This is the OC Variety Hour. I am Cameron Jackson. My guest co-host, Manoj Mahindrakar, is not in studio today, but uh, maybe he'll be back next week for the Christina Shea interview, which is a good segue to that. Next week, of course, 8 a.m. right here on KUCI, I will have Irvine, Irvine City Councilwoman Christina Shea in studio to talk about the Great Park and the shenanigans of Larry Agron. My guest today, and before I get into that, too, real quick, I need to, to tell you one thing quick thing. You know, the PA shows here at KUCI are a very important staple of the station, and we really try to bring to you, through the PA shows, great content, great topics, great guests. And one of those shows that has just blown me away since I've been here is Talking Animals with Duncan Strauss. It's Mondays at 9 a.m., and frankly, I like to I, I like to say that, you know, I'm not really an animal person. But the show is interesting. Even if you're not an animal person, yes, Talking Animals is a very interesting show. Check it out, 9 a.m. Monday mornings. Today, my guest in studio is DA spokeswoman Susan Kang Schroeder. She's been very gracious to come down and talk about some of the big cases that are going on right now in Orange County, though it being Heidel and Jaramillo. We've been talking a little bit of the rebuttal to some of the things that Joe Cavallo has been saying about you when he came here in studio. Now, on the Jaramillo case, it's my understanding that you're actually a sitting attorney on the case. Is that is that true? Um, actually, there's whenever there's a, a case that's important to the office, whether it's Alejandro Avila case or Heidel case, a case that has more significance um, to the public uh, based upon whatever themes it may take, there's a group of attorneys that are assigned, and uh, you know we're on, and the district attorney oversees it, um, and uh, there's constant dialogue as to strategy and what have you. So do you? So what is your role then on the case? My role on the case right now is I'm a person who's going to be the office's spokesperson on the case. Um, I'm going to provide some support as as to. Uh, Helping bring some experts, but I'm not going to be the just. I'm not going to be the deputy DA trying the case. So you won't be doing any cross examination, no, any direct, any no. of that type of stuff. Okay. One of the questions that I have, and it, Joe kind of asked it too, but in a roundabout way, um, or, he, or he states it actually, is your husband is Michael Schroeder, and Michael Schroeder is the political consultant to both Tony Rakakis and. Um, well, he was his campaign manager, correct? Well, he was Tony's campaign manager, right. and he's friends with uh, uh, Mike Corona. Well, he's but his he's political not consultant. No. Well, that's how it's portrayed in the media. Well, yeah. I mean, every, but you should you should not believe everything. Well, everything you, everything you hear that in the I media. read, it, all the people, everybody I talk to as well, says that he's a political advisor to Mike Corona. He's a he's a friend and political advisor, but he's not a political consultant. What's That's the difference the, between an advisor and cons, a consultant? Consultant has an official role. An advisor is somebody who who uh, uh, tells him what he thinks about certain things when asked. Um, he and, and if that's uh, the criteria, he'd be a con- political consultant to half of Orange County hmm. um, and a lot of other people in the state. Susan, so, I, I think they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> they're really not. I mean, he he advises uh, a lot of different people. I'm um, Steve Poisner, who's running for uh, insurance commissioner. 
Um, uh, you know, he people outside of California, a lot of people call him and ask for political advice. Um, I don't think that makes him a political consultant. At least, you know, I haven't seen any proceeds of it. Right. And as to uh, if, if Mr. Cavallo thinks that uh, Mike Schroeder, uh, there's something nefarious about him uh, knowing both the sheriff and the... Well, uh, and no, the, I, I, I don't think that it's nefarious. I just My question is, mm-hmm. is it a conflict of interest that you've got your husband who is has dealings with Mike Corona and Tony Rakakis, you're the spokeswoman on the case, and in my mind, it seems that it's just too close. There's too there's too much talking back and forth that can be done between you and your husband and then between your husband and Tony Rakakis and, and Mike Corona. And this case, this Jaramillo case, is very politically, in my opinion, it's politically motivated. I mean, Jaramillo was not popular within the department, I've heard that from many sheriff's deputies, and, and so you know I'm talking about sources there. He's not popular in the department. He's got a lot of problems, it sounds like. And Mike Corona's been under fire for many, many other things right now, and he's getting ready to get into an election campaign for 2006. And it seems to me that this is kind of, it could be a roundabout way for him to clear the decks politically so that he can kind of have a clean slate. He had Heidel that was a problem. He's had these 86 deputies that were reserve deputies that are having a problem with Post. He's got Yi now, who's uh, the, the karate golfer uh, with his gun in San Bernardino County. He's got a lot of issues. He's got his, his organization, his uh, fundraising organization. Do you see how maybe the public could see that as a conflict of interest? There's just, the, you know... Susan Schroeder, Michael Schroeder, Corona, Rakakis. Well, first of all, the entire Jaramillo prosecution has been done under the guidance of the Attorney General's office. And whenever the DA's office has even an appearance of a conflict, we talk to the AG's office as to whether they feel like we have such a conflict they need to take the case. So we've been in consult with them th- from before we even filed a case, okay? And um, and anybody who thinks that Tony Rakakis filed a criminal complaint against Mr. Jaramillo so that Mr. Corona could have him fired just doesn't know what's going on. First of all, it's not unusual for people in the DA's office who are married to people in the sheriff's department, people who are judges, people who are defense attorneys, in fact, um, Joe Cavallo is a long-term friend of Mr. Mr. Uh, Corona. Yeah, in fact, you know what's funny about that? I was doing some research. He actually donated to Mike Corona's campaign in 1996. Well, not only that, um, when uh, Mr. Corona was uh, re-elected in 2002, Joe Corona, uh, I'm sorry, Joe Corona, Joe Cavallo was uh, one of the th- people who put on his, uh, I don't know what you call that, but inauguration party. Uh-huh. So they're very, very close. Um, and first of all, that firing occurred before we filed any charges. It just doesn't work that way. Mike Corona had no participation in filing of the charges. He's a witness to our case. Um, and Mr. Rakakis knows nothing about as to why Mr. Jaramillo was fired other than what he's read in the newspaper or heard in the media. It just doesn't work that way. As prosecutors, we have a duty to only file cases that we have evidence on and um, that we could prove beyond a reasonable doubt in front of a jury. And Mr. Corona, um, my husband, nor me, participated in the decision as to whether to file charges against Mr. Jaramillo. It was done by 
the district attorney and and his deputies that um, that uh, and his investigators that that gather the evidence. It really, I know there's. It sounds really sexy with a conspiracy, but um, it just doesn't well, work that way. Yeah, and you just look at things that have occurred in Orange County over the years, politically speaking, and it doesn't seem like it's out of the realm of possibility. I mean, there have been a lot of underhanded political dealings in Orange County, just as there are in other counties as well. I'm not singling Orange County as far as that's concerned, but you can see where that has the appearance of impropriety. Well, if there is a conflict, the AG's office has the duty, and we're going to be in you know, constant consult with him as to whether we should not be in this case or not, based upon the relationships. And, and it's just not unusual at all for police officers to be married to defense attorneys to uh, DAs or uh, judges or DAs to be married to public defenders. It's, it happens. Fair enough. Let, let's listen to this one thing that Joe has to say about this subject so that you, we, can, we can address this last thing that he says because it, it, he not only talks about your husband, but he kind of, kind of attacks you as well. So I want to hear what you have to say about this because I think you have to respond to this. If it were not for her husband, she'd still be trying misdemeanor cases for the Anaheim City Attorney's Office. He's talking and about And she wasn't Mike. doing a real good job of that when she was doing that. Okay, she, she, she does not have the respect of her department. They won't tell her to her face, but I walk around that building, every single one of these courthouses in this county and outside the county, quite frankly, I don't haven't heard anybody say anything nice about her at all. Unless, of course, she's present, then they have to concern themselves with whether or not they're going to lose their job or be prosecuted by, uh, by the uh, prosecutor in this county for saying something about one of his best friends, wives. Uh, so it, it, this, is, this is not somebody, this is somebody who takes great pleasure in, in hurting people emotionally. It takes great pleasure in reading about how she's badmouthed uh, uh, individuals who are innocent, who have uh, simply doing their job. Well, pretty salacious stuff. I mean, those are some quite the, that's quite the, um, what do you have to say? Well, I don't think that Mr. Cavallo can ever appreciate a woman being a professional. I think he's a misogynist. I think that he's very uncomfortable with women having professional roles. And he just can't imagine that a woman who's married to another person could actually hold a job. <laughs> and, uh, and I know, um, I mean, for example, um, Mr. Cavallo didn't like something I did professionally, and he went and called my husband and told on me. So that's the type of person Mr. Cavallo is. And as to um, uh, my time at the city attorney's office, um, when I applied for that position, everybody, uh, all the uh, county officials or uh, county agencies were in bankruptcy. Um, I came out of law school with about a year's worth of experience at, at interning at various uh, DA's offices. And, um, and I was one of the 550 people who applied for one position at the city attorney's office. And I'm very proud of what I did there. I did over 40 jury trials when I was a city attorney. And, um, and I was lucky enough to have gotten a job at the DA's office after that. And as to my reputation in the legal community, um, I think that um, I'm very well respected by judges and defense attorneys, and I have a good relationship with them. And, um, and uh, I just wanted to let Mr. Cavallo know that perhaps he should check his calendar and, and know that it's 2005, not 1805, that women can have jobs <laughs> and be quite successful at it. So. And there he has it. Okay, let's switch gears here. 
And I'm glad you got the chance to talk because when I re-listened to the entire interview with Joe, those two things that I picked out were really the most. I mean, those are hard-hitting things. Those are those are. He makes some pretty big claims there, and I'm glad that you responded to that. Let's change gears to something that occurred in 2002. Were you a spokeswoman in 2002? I came on um, uh, for Avila in July of 2002. Okay, so right when this occurred then. There, and, and this kind of goes along because I, I find bureaucracies and I find um, things that elected officials do fascinating. That's why I was a political scientist when I was here at UCI. And one of the stories that I know garnered a lot of attention, and I want to bring it up again because we're coming up on a new election cycle and Tony Rokakis is running again for DA. Back in 2002, there were several people in the office that decided to oppose Tony Rokakis, one of which was Wally Wade, and then he had several supporters as well that were in the office. And when Wally, unfortunately, did not get elected, and as a result, he and six others were transferred to the Child Support Division. And soon thereafter... Per state law, the child support division was separated from the DA's office, and they were no longer DAs. They were for child support. And I just go over the list real quick because it was Wally Wade who had about 25 years on. You had Bob Gannon with about 25 years on. Joe Smith, 16 years. Jane Shade had 15 to 20 years. Connie Bailey, 5 to 10 years. Guy Orms, 25, 20 to 25 years. And Vicki Hicks with 20 years plus on. These people who appear to have, you know, some long standing in the DA's office, and really their only crime being that they opposed DA Rakakis, were transferred to child support. And the people who were in child support were transferred over to the DA's office. You lost quite a bit of experience there when that occurred. And I, my question is, how does the DA justify doing something like that when their crime is only really just opposing him and how does that play out for morale in the office how does that play out how does that convince me as a citizen somebody who's going to vote in the 2006 election for a new da how does that convince me that that tony rakakis is running a clean house and that he's not somebody who is more worried about being vindictive than getting the job done with experienced personnel well i i need to take it take us back a little bit sure. uh historically yeah when uh, Tony Rakakis ran for DA in 1998, he was a first, uh, and he was elected. He was the first DA to come from outside the office mm-hmm. in 40 years, and he really he ran because he didn't like uh, the uh, the three strikes policy of the prior administration. He felt that um, some people who shouldn't be sent away for the rest of their lives should uh, were getting sent there for the rest of their lives, and that he should we should um, be more exercise more more justice. Um, somebody who steals a pack of gum, maybe for their third strike, maybe should not be sent away for the rest of their life, for example. Um, and he also wanted to take the office into a different direction, less uh, focused on, on uh, political prosecutions, but more focused on violent crimes such as uh, gang crimes, rapes, um, and, and also take the, the office towards um, cleaning up the environment in Orange County. Now, uh, when he came in, um, he had to form a management management team um, that supported his his agenda and his views. 
And when some of the people that you mentioned may not have made the management team, what they did for four years was they were very disruptive to the office and disruptive to Mr. Rakakis's agenda. And, um, and it wasn't that six people whose only crime was to oppose him got sent. There were actually a lot of people who campaigned against Mr. Rakakis um, in both 98 and 2002. Um, it's that when, in 2002, Mr. Rakakis felt that those uh, people were dis disruptive as to the office and they were sent there. And, um, and, and they sued and they went to court and the judge felt that they had uh, absolutely no case and threw the case out of court. And, and not only that, you know, it'd be absurd to think that, uh, that Schwarzenegger should have kept all of Davis's managers when he came on board or Bush uh, should have kept all of Clinton's. Um, you know, when, when different elective officials come in, they pick their own staff. And as far as the number of years, um, you know, um, that's the, a lot of years. I mean, this yeah. is a lot of experienced people that were that were sent <clears throat> that were banished over to the child support division, and they're still there. I know that I know that it's on appeal right now. Is that correct? Um, well, they filed an appeal. Right. Uh, it's not likely they're going to win. And so, <clears throat> why do you say that? Because they don't have a case. I mean, the law is very clear. Now, I had I had heard that the jury was actually coming back in favor of these people and that the judge threw out the, the charges. Well, the judge threw out the charges because they could not meet the elements to support that charge. And as to, there was a, um, the LA Times had quoted a, a juror, one of the jurors saying that um, they were going to come back for the, uh, for the plaintiffs, but the jurors we spoke to said no way, no how, um, and they hadn't even started deliberating yet. So I don't know why that juror would even think that, that um, they would have come back with a verdict and as as far as um as far as people who opposed Mr. Rakakis people who opposed Mr. Rakakis actually and that weren't transferred but decided that hey we're going to um you know embrace the agenda that Mr. Rakakis says is to the environment gangs uh going after violent sex offenders they've actually been promoted some of them are managers now um, I know people who have had uh, Wally Way for DA signs in their backyard, or I mean, I'm sorry, in their front yard. Uh, they've been promoted. Um, it, it wasn't about them opposing Mr. Rakakis. It was whether people were willing to um, support his agenda or not. And elected officials have the right to set their own agendas as to um, what they want. And, and, and if they don't, um, if they do the wrong things, the people have the right and the duty to kick them out of office. And what, what what exactly was it that they were doing that was disruptive? They basically were hurting the morale of the office. Um, they were constant, uh, uh, almost like a dark cloud in the office. And since they've left, things have been great. Um, people are working harder than ever. We're, we've been under a tremendous amount of uh, uh, budgetary constraints. Um, we've uh, we're we actually gave back recently gave back two million dollars back to the county because of the work that our our office has done. We, as an office, do more um, with a smaller number of deputy DAs than other counties surrounding us that um, have uh, uh, bigger budgets. And um, morale in our office is great. People are working harder than ever. What do you think uh, 
now is he's running pretty Spitzer dropped out of the race so at this point is Tony Rakakis running unopposed Mr. Rakakis is running opposed unopposed and um and the election is June of 2006 right around the corner it'll be here sooner than you think so let's talk about the DA's office right now what do you guys got on the plate what's on the what's on the front burner what are some of the big issues in the DA's office right now that are that are most concerning to the DA's office and that you think the public should know about that you guys are working on? Well, one of the um, cases that we have, I think, is one of the most compelling cases, is um, the, the um, case against Skylar DeLeon and his cohorts. Oh, right, right. And that involves um, wh- what happens is Skylar DeLeon commits a uh, residential burglary with a gun in uh, 2002, and a judge... <laughs> for some reason, allows him to uh, get work furlough at a private jail where he's free to come and go um, pretty much and just basically check in at night and, and gives him probation. And, and our office's view is that that's a, you know, anyone who commits, goes into someone's house, invades their pro, uh, private sanctity with a gun and handcuffs, um, that's a state prison case. But right. Mr. Dalen was lucky to have got that. While he was out on probation for that case. And was that an Orange County case at the time? Yes, that was an Orange County case. Okay. Um, he um, commits murders, or we're charging him with murders for committing um, on John Jarvie. Um, basically, John Jarvie um, meets him at the uh, um, at the jail, and, um, and they somehow decide they're going to do business together, and uh, John Jarvie ends up giving Mr. DeLeon uh, $50,000, and Mr. DeLeon is charged with getting two other people to um, basically help him um, commit that murder. And about a year later, he uh, answers a a for-sale-by-owner ad by Jackie and Thomas Hawks, who are just decent, salt-of-the-earth people who wanted to have a smaller boat so they could spend more time with their grandchild in Arizona and basically had their life savings in this beautiful yacht and uh, he went um, and gained their trust with his uh, with his pregnant wife, and basically hired um, two thugs to um, uh, at, at gunpoint forced the Hawks to sign a um, a, a um, sign some papers, and then threw them power of attorney. Power of attorney. Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> and uh, it's a complicated case. Yeah, I mean, you got you got to keep everything straight. Exactly. I, and I, I understand. And our um, allegation is that Mr. DeLeon and his, and his thugs um, tied people to an anchor, and they were thrown off board while they were alive. And I just can't get can't get this out of my mind. That poor Thomas and Jackie Hawks, as they're drowning and as they're sinking watching their boat go away and it just it breaks my heart and um i think that's going to be a huge case in our office it was when i read the testimony of the detective and how they were killed it just was like how i you you know it's so easy to just say kill them burn them at the stake you know daily on and his wife and the thugs and whatnot and of course we have to go through the process and we have to make sure that they really did it and and this that and the other thing but boy, it really is powerful testimony, and it really—you um, can't think of a worse way to kill somebody and to die. I mean, it just—it was—it's horrific. The way it sounds is horrific. What's horrific is that while per- this person was given a basically a free pass and, and mercy of the court, um, is out, he commits two murders. Mm. 
and he's charged with committing. Now, how did the second one, the one with Jarvis, how did that one, how did they figure that one out? What happened was that actually uh, Jarvi, the Jarvi murder occurred in uh, December of 2003, about a year before the Hawks murder. And when we were investigating the Hawks murder, and by the way, Newport Beach did a great job. They were fantastic. Um, That investigation of the Hawks murder actually left led us to the Jarvey murder and helped us solve that, which occurred a year before the Hawks murder. Now, what about, let's let's go back to the Jaramillo case and the Heidel case. Heidel case, we're waiting for sentencing, that's correct? Heidel case, we're waiting for the court's determination as to whether they're, they're going to be tried as, I'm sorry, be sentenced as adults or juveniles, and that's going to occur on September 30th. And the Jaramillo case, where do we stand with the Jaramillo case? On the Jaramillo case, there's a pretrial set for September 9th, and um, we're going to, at that point, uh, get a trial date. Um, and it's before Judge Fazel, who I think is one of the best judges in the county. Anything else that the DA's office has got going right now in the last few minutes? Well, um, we're... Any, continu- close, any closing remarks from you, Susan? Well, I really appreciate you having... Um, you thank know, you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And, and it, was, I- it was good to hear your point of view. And and uh, and uh, I just want to say my boss is not evil or the dark lord as you have it on your website. He's actually a tremendous guy, and he's got he's a man of ethics and and a heart of gold, and he's actually uh, one of the best people I know. Outstanding. Fair enough. Susan, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. I hope you come back and talk to us again in the near future when things come up and uh, issues arise. I love to come back anytime. Beautiful. This has been the OC Variety Hour. I am Cameron Jackson. Remember, next week on the show, Irvine City Councilwoman Christina Shea will be in studio to talk about the Great Park and the shenanigans of good old Larry Agrin, my favorite man, my favorite politician in Orange County. Uh, Till next week, folks, it's been good, it's been fun, and I will see you here again. You have been listening to the OC Variety Hour with Cameron Jackson and Manoj Mahindrakar. The OC Variety Hour is written, produced, directed, and engineered by Cameron Jackson. When you really need to know what's going on in the world, the nation, California, and Orange County, there's only one source. The OC Variety Hour. Till next time, ladies and gentlemen, goodbye.